This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wills. Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 33 and 34. Chapter 33. I was immensely touched. Her youth, her ignorance, her pretty beauty, which had the simple charm and the delicate vigor of a wild flower, her pathetic pleading, her helplessness, appealed to me with almost the strength of her own unreasonable, unnatural fear. She feared the unknown, as we all do, and her ignorance made the unknown infinitely vast. I stood for it for myself, for you fellows, for all the world that neither cared for Jim nor needed him in the least. I would have been ready enough to answer for the indifference of the teeming earth, but for the reflection that he too belonged to this mysterious unknown of her fears, and that however much I stood for, I did not stand for him. This made me hesitate. A murmur of hopeless pain unsealed my lips, I began by protesting that I at least had come with no intention to take Jim away. Why did I come, then? After a slight movement she was as still as a marble statue in the night. I tried to explain briefly, friendship, business. If I had any wish in the matter, it was rather to see him stay. They always leave us, she murmured the breath of sad wisdom from the grave which her piety wreathed with flowers seemed to pass in a faint sigh. Nothing, I said, could separate Jim from her. It is my firm conviction now. It was my conviction at the time. It was the only possible conclusion from the facts of the case. It was not made more certain by her whispering in a tone in which one speaks to oneself, He swore this to me. "'Did you ask him?' I said. She made a step nearer. "'No, never. She had asked him only to go away. It was that night on the river bank after he had killed the man, after she had flung the torch in the water because he was looking at her so. There was too much light and the danger was over then, for a little time, for a little time. He said then he would not abandon her to Cornelius. She had insisted— she wanted him to leave her. He said that he could not, that it was impossible. He trembled while he said this. She had felt him tremble. One does not require much imagination to see the scene, almost to hear their whispers. She was afraid for him, too. I believe that then she saw in him only a predestined victim of dangers which she understood better than himself though by nothing but his mere presence had he mastered her heart, had he filled all her thoughts, and had possessed himself of all her affections, she underestimated his chances of success. It is obvious that about that time everybody was inclined to underestimate his chances. Strictly speaking, he didn't seem to have any. I know this was Cornelius's view— he confessed as much to me in extenuation of the shady part he had played in Sherif Ali's plot to do away with the infidel. Even Sherif Ali himself, as it seems certain now, had nothing but contempt for the white man. Jim was to be murdered mainly on religious grounds, I believe, 
a simple act of piety, and in so far infinitely meritorious, but otherwise without much importance. In the last part of this opinion Cornelius concurred. Honourable sir, he argued, abjectly, on the only occasion he managed to have me to himself, Honourable sir, how was I to know? Who was he? What could he do to make people believe him? What did Mr. Stein mean sending a boy like that to talk big to an old servant? I was ready to save him for eighty dollars. Only eighty dollars. Why didn't the fool go? Was I to get myself stabbed for the sake of a stranger? He groveled in spirit before me, with his body doubled up insinuatingly, and his hands hovering about my knees, as though he were ready to embrace my legs. What's eighty dollars? An insignificant sum to give to a defenceless old man, ruined for life by a deceased she-devil. Here he wept. But I anticipate. I didn't that night chance upon Cornelius till I had had it out with the girl. She was unselfish when she urged Jim to leave her, and even to leave the country. It was his danger that was foremost in her thoughts, even if she wanted to save herself too, perhaps unconsciously. But then look at the warning she had, look at the lesson that could be drawn from every moment of the recently ended life in which all her memories were centred. She fell at his feet. She told me so, there by the river, in the discreet light of the stars, which showed nothing except great masses of silent shadows, indefinite open spaces, and trembling faintly upon the broad stream made it appear as wide as the sea. He had lifted her up. He lifted her up, and then she would struggle no more. Of course not. Strong arms, a tender voice, a stalwart shoulder to rest her poor lonely little head upon— the need, the infinite need of all this for the aching heart, for the bewildered mind, the promptings of youth, the necessity of the moment, what would you have? One understands, unless one is incapable of understanding anything under the sun. And so she was content to be lifted up and held. You know, Jove, this is serious. No nonsense in it as Jim had whispered hurriedly with a troubled, concerned face on the threshold of his house. I don't know so much about nonsense, but there was nothing light-hearted in their romance. They came together under the shadow of a life's disaster, like knight and maiden meeting to exchange vows among haunted ruins. The starlight was good enough for that story, a light so faint and remote that it could not resolve shadows into shapes, and show the other shore of a stream. I did look upon the stream that night, and from the very place. It rolled silent and black as sticks. The next day I went away, but I am not likely to forget what it was she wanted to be saved from when she entreated him to leave her while there was time. She told me what it was, calmed. She was now too passionately interested for mere excitement, in a voice as quiet in the obscurity as her white, half-lost figure, she told me, I didn't want to die weeping. I thought I had not heard aright. You did not want to die weeping, I repeated after her. Like my mother, she added readily. 
The outlines of her white shape did not stir in the least. My mother had wept bitterly before she died, she explained. An inconceivable calmness seemed to have risen from the ground around us, imperceptibly, like the still rise of a flood in the night, obliterating the familiar landmarks of emotions. There came upon me, as though I had felt myself losing my footing in the midst of waters, a sudden dread, the dread of the unknown depths. She went on explaining that during the last moments, being alone with her mother, she had to leave the side of the couch to go and set her back against the door, in order to keep Cornelius out. He desired to get in, and kept on drumming with both fists, only desisting now and then to shout huskily, let me in, let me in, let me in. In a far corner, upon a few mats, the moribund woman, already speechless and unable to lift her arm, rolled her head over, and with a feeble movement of her hand seemed to command, No, no. And the obedient daughter, setting her shoulders with all her strength against the door, was looking on. The tears fell from her eyes, and then she died, concluded the girl in an imperturbable monotone, which more than anything else, more than the white statuesque immobility of her person, more than mere words could do, troubled my mind profoundly with the passive, irremediable horror of the scene. She had the power to drive me out of my conception of existence, out of that shelter each of us makes for himself to creep under in moments of danger, as a tortoise withdraws within its shell. For a moment I had a view of a world that seemed to wear a vast and dismal aspect of disorder, while in truth, thanks to our unwearied efforts, it is as sunny an arrangement of small conveniences as the mind of man can conceive. But still, it was only a moment. I went back into my shell directly. One must, don't you know? Though I seemed to have lost all my words in the chaos of dark thoughts, I had contemplated for a second or two beyond the pale. These came back, too, very soon, for words also belong to the sheltering conception of light and order which is our refuge. I had them ready at my disposal before she whispered softly, He swore he would never leave me, when we stood there alone. He swore to me. And it is possible that you, you, do not believe him? I asked, sincerely reproachful, genuinely shocked. Why couldn't she believe? Wherefore this craving for incertitude, this clinging to fear, as if incertitude and fear had been the safeguards of her love? It was monstrous. She should have made for herself a shelter of inexpungible peace out of that honest affection. She had not the knowledge, not the skill, perhaps. The night had come on apace, it had grown pitch dark where we were, so that without stirring she had faded like the intangible form of a wistful and perverse spirit. And suddenly I heard her quiet whisper again. Other men had sworn the same thing. It was like a meditative comment on some thoughts full of sadness, of awe. And she added, still lower if possible, My father did. She paused the time to draw an inaudible breath. Her father, too. 
These were the things she knew. At once I said, Ah, but he is not like that. This, it seemed, she did not intend to dispute, but after a time the strange still whisper wandering dreamily in the air stole into my ears. Why is he different? Is he better? Is he... Upon my word of honour, I broke in, I believe he is. We subdued our tones to a mysterious pitch. Amongst the huts of Jim's workmen, they were mostly liberated slaves from the sheriff's stockade, somebody started a shrill, drawling song. Across the river, a big fire, at Doramine's, I think, made a glowing ball completely isolated in the night. "'Is he more true?' she murmured. "'Yes,' I said. "'More true than any other man?' she repeated in lingering accents. "'Nobody here,' I said, "'would dream of doubting his word. "'Nobody would dare. "'Except you.' "'I think she made a movement at this. "'More brave?' she went on in a changed tone. "'Fear will never drive him away from you,' I said a little nervously. "'The song stopped short on a shrill note "'and was succeeded by several voices talking in the distance.' Jim's voice, too. I was struck by her silence. "'What has he been telling you?' "'He has been telling you something?' I asked. There was no answer. "'What is it he told you?' I insisted. "'Do you think I can tell you? How am I to know? How am I to understand?' she cried at last. There was a stir. I believe she was wringing her hands. "'There is something he can never forget.' "'So much the better for you,' I said gloomily. "'What is it? What is it?' She put an extraordinary force of appeal into her supplicating tone. "'He says he had been afraid. How can I believe this? Am I a mad woman to believe this? You all remember something. You all go back to it. What is it?' You tell me, what is this thing? Is it alive? Is it dead? I hate it. It is cruel. Has it got a face and a voice, this calamity? Will he see it? Will he hear it? In his sleep, perhaps, when he cannot see me? And then arise and go? Ah, I shall never forgive him. My mother had forgiven, but I never. Will it be a sign? A call? It was a wonderful experience. She mistrusted his very slumbers, and she seemed to think I could tell her why. Thus a poor mortal, seduced by the charm of an apparition, might have tried to wring from another ghost the tremendous secret of the claim the other world holds over a disembodied soul astray amongst the passions of this earth. The very ground on which I stood seemed to melt under my feet, and it was so simple, too. But if these spirits, evoked by our fears and our unrest, have ever to vouch for each other's constancy before the forlorn magicians that we are, then I, I alone of us dwellers in the flesh, have shuddered in the hopeless chill of such a task. A sign, a call, how telling in its expression was her ignorance. A few words, 
How she came to know them, how she came to pronounce them, I can't imagine. Women find their inspiration in the stress of moments that, for us, are merely awful, absurd, or futile. To discover that she had a voice at all was enough to strike awe into the heart. Had a spurned stone cried out in pain, it could not have appeared a greater and more pitiful miracle. These few sounds, wandering in the dark, had made their two benighted lives tragic to my mind. It was impossible to make her understand. I chafed silently at my impotence. And Jim, too, poor devil, who would need him? Who would remember him? He had what he wanted. His very existence probably had been forgotten by this time. They had mastered their fates. They were tragic. Her immobility before me was clearly expectant, and my part was to speak for my brother from the realm of forgetful shade. I was deeply moved at my responsibility and at her distress. I would have given anything for the power to soothe her frail soul, tormenting itself in its invincible ignorance like a small bird beating about the cruel wires of a cage. Nothing easier than to say, Have no fear! <laughs> nothing more difficult. How does one kill fear, I wonder? How do you shoot a spectre through the heart, slash off its spectral head, take it by its spectral throat? It is an enterprise you rush into while you dream, and are glad to make your escape with wet hair and every limb shaking. The bullet is not run, the blade not forged, the man not born, even the winged words of truth drop at your feet like lumps of lead. You require, for such a desperate encounter, an enchanted and poisoned shaft dipped in a lie too subtle to be found on earth. An enterprise for a dream, my masters. I began my exorcism with a heavy heart, with a sort of sullen anger in it, too. Jim's voice, suddenly raised with stern intonation, carried across the courtyard, reproving the carelessness of some dumb sinner by the riverside. Nothing, I said, speaking in a distinct murmur. There could be nothing in that unknown world she fancied so eager to rob her of her happiness. There was nothing, neither living nor dead. There was no face, no voice, no power that could tear Jim from her side. I drew breath, and she whispered softly, "'He told me so.' "'He told you the truth,' I said. "'Nothing,' she sighed out, and abruptly turned upon me with a barely audible intensity of tone. "'Why did you come to us from out there? "'He speaks of you too often. "'You make me afraid. "'Do you—do you want him?' A sort of stealthy fierceness had crept into our hurried murmurs. "'I shall never come again,' I said bitterly. "'And I don't want him. No one wants him.' "'No one?' she repeated in a tone of doubt. "'No one,' I affirmed, feeling myself swayed by some strange excitement. "'You think him strong, wise, courageous, great. Why not believe him to be true, too?' I shall go to-morrow, and that is the end. You shall never be troubled by a voice from there again. This world you don't know is too big to miss him, you understand? Too big! You've got his heart in your hand. 
You must feel that. You must know that. Yes, I know that, she breathed out, hard and still as a statue might whisper. I felt I had done nothing. And what is it that I had wished to do? I am not sure now. At the time I was animated by an inexplicable ardour, as if before some great and necessary task, the influence of the moment upon my mental and emotional state. There are in all our lives such moments, such influences, coming from the outside, as it were, irresistible, incomprehensible, as if brought about by the mysterious conjunctions of the planets. She owned, as I had put it to her, his heart. She had that and everything else, if she could only believe it. What I had to tell her was that in the whole world there was no one who would ever need his heart, his mind, his hand. It was a common fate, and yet it seemed an awful thing to say of any man. She listened without a word, and her stillness now was like the protest of an invincible unbelief. What need she care for the world beyond the forests, I asked. From all the multitudes that peopled the vastness of that unknown, there would come, I assured her, as long as he lived, neither a call nor a sign for him. Never. I was carried away. Never. Never. I remember with wonder the sort of dogged fierceness I displayed. I had the illusion of having got the spectre by the throat at last. Indeed, the whole real thing has left behind the detailed and amazing impression of a dream. Why should she fear? She knew him to be strong, true, wise, brave. He was all that. Certainly. He was more. He was great, invincible. And the world did not want him. It had forgotten him. It would not even know him. I stopped. The silence over Patizan was profound, and the feeble, dry sound of a paddle striking the side of a canoe somewhere in the midst of the river seemed to make it infinite. Why? she murmured. I felt that sort of rage one feels during a hard tussle. The spectre was trying to slip out of my grasp. Why? she repeated louder. Tell me. And as I remained confounded, she stamped with her foot like a spoiled child. Why? Speak. You want to know? I asked in a fury. Yes, she cried. Because he is not good enough, I said brutally. During the moment's pause, I noticed the fire on the other shore blaze up, dilating the circle of its glow like an amazed stare and contract suddenly to a red pinpoint. I only knew how close to me she had been when I felt the clutch of her fingers on my forearm. Without raising her voice, she threw it into an infinity of scathing contempt, bitterness, and despair. This is the very thing he said. You lie. The last two words she cried at me in the native dialect. Hear me out, I entreated. She caught her breath, tremulously flung my arm away. Nobody, nobody is good enough, I began with the greatest earnestness. I could hear the sobbing labor of her breath, frightfully quickened. I hung my head. What was the use? Footsteps were approaching. 
I slipped away without another word. Chapter 34 Marlowe swung his legs out, got up quickly, and staggered a little, as though he had been set down after a rush through space. He leaned his back against the balustrade and faced a disordered array of long cane chairs. The bodies, prone in them, seemed startled out of their torpor by his movement. One or two sat up as if alarmed. Here and there a cigar glowed yet. Marlowe looked at them all with the eyes of a man returning from the excessive remoteness of a dream. A throat was cleared, a calm voice encouraged negligently. Well? Nothing, said Marlowe with a slight start. He had told her, that's all. She did not believe him. Nothing more. As to myself, I do not know whether it be just, proper, decent for me to rejoice or to be sorry. For my part, I cannot say what I believed. Indeed, I don't know to this day, and never shall, probably. But what did the poor devil believe himself? Truth shall prevail, don't you know? Magna est veritas, el... Yes, when it gets a chance. There is a law, no doubt, and likewise a law regulates your luck in throwing of the dice. It is not justice, the servant of men, but accident, hazard, fortune, the ally of patient time, that holds an even and scrupulous balance. Both of us had said the very same thing. Did we both speak the truth, or did one of us, or neither? Marlowe paused, crossed his arms on his breast, and in a changed tone. She said we lied. Poor soul. Well, let's leave it to chance, whose ally is time, that cannot be hurried, and whose enemy is death, that will not wait. I had retreated, a little cowed, I must own. I had tried to fall with fear itself, and got thrown, of course. I had only succeeded in adding to her anguish the hint of some mysterious collusion, of an inexplicable and incomprehensible conspiracy to keep her forever in the dark. And it had come easily, naturally, unavoidably, by his act, by her own act. It was as though I had been shown the working of the implacable destiny of which we are the victims and the tools. It was appalling to think of the girl whom I had left standing there motionless, Jim's footsteps had a fateful sound as he tramped by without seeing me in his heavy laced boots. "'What? No lights?' he said in a loud, surprised voice. "'What are you doing in the dark, you two? Next moment he caught sight of her, I suppose. "'Hello, girl!' he cried cheerily. "'Hello, boy!' she answered at once, with amazing pluck. This was their usual greeting to each other, and the bit of swagger she would put into her rather high but sweet voice was very droll, pretty, and childlike. It delighted Jim greatly. This was the last occasion on which I heard them exchange this familiar hail, and it struck a chill into my heart. There was the high sweet voice, the pretty effort, the swagger, but it all seemed to die out prematurely, and the playful call sounded like a moan. It was too confoundedly awful. "'What have you done with Marlowe?' Jim was asking. And then, "'Gone down, has he? Funny I didn't meet him. You there, Marlowe?' I didn't answer. 
I wasn't going in, not yet at any rate. I really couldn't. While he was calling me, I was engaged in making my escape through a little gate leading out upon a stretch of newly cleared ground. No, I couldn't face them yet. I walked hastily with lowered head along a trodden path. The ground rose gently, a few big trees had been felled, the undergrowth had been cut down, and the grass fired. He had a mind to try a coffee plantation there. The big hill, rearing its double summit coal-black in the clear yellow glow of the rising moon, seemed to cast its shadow upon the ground prepared for that experiment. He was going to try ever so many experiments. I had admired his energy, his enterprise, and his shrewdness. Nothing on earth seemed less real now than his plans, his energy, and his enthusiasm and raising my eyes I saw part of the moon glittering through the bushes at the bottom of the chasm. For a moment it looked as though the smooth disk, falling from its place in the sky upon the earth, had rolled to the bottom of that precipice. Its ascending movement was like a leisurely rebound. It disengaged itself from the tangle of twigs. The bare contorted limb of some tree growing on the slope made a black crack right across its face. It threw its level rays afar as if from a cavern, and in this mournful eclipse-like light the stumps of felled trees uprose very dark. The heavy shadows fell at my feet on all sides, my own moving shadow, and across my path the shadow of the solitary grave perpetually garlanded with flowers. In the darkened moonlight the interlaced blossoms took on shapes foreign to one memory, and colours indefinable to the eye, as though they had been special flowers, gathered by no man, grown not in this world, and destined for the use of the dead alone. Their powerful scent hung in the warm air, making it thick and heavy, like the fumes of incense. The lumps of white coral shone round the dark mound like a chaplet of bleached skulls, and everything around was so quiet, that when I stood still all sound and all movement in the world seemed to come to an end. It was a great peace, as if the earth had been one grave, and for a time I stood there thinking mostly of the living, who, buried in remote places out of the knowledge of mankind, still are fated to share in its tragic or grotesque miseries. In its noble struggles, too, who knows, the human heart is vast enough to contain all the world. It is valiant enough to bear the burden. But where is the courage that would cast it off? I suppose I must have fallen into a sentimental mood. I only know that I stood there long enough for the sense of utter solitude to get hold of me so completely that all I had lately seen, all I had heard, and the very human speech itself seemed to have passed away out of existence, living only for a while longer in my memory, as though I had been the last of mankind. It was a strange and melancholy illusion, evolved half-consciously, like all our illusions, which I suspect only to be visions of remote, unattainable truth seen dimly. This was, indeed, one of the lost, forgotten, unknown places of the earth, I had looked under its obscure surface, and I felt that when to-morrow I had left it for ever, it would slip out of existence, to live only in my memory till I myself 
passed into oblivion. I have that feeling about me now. Perhaps it is that feeling which has incited me to tell you the story, to try to hand it over to you, as it were, its very existence, its reality, the truth disclosed in a moment of illusion. Cornelius broke upon it. He bolted out, vermin-like, from the long grass growing in a depression in the ground. I believe his house was rotting somewhere nearby, though I've never seen it, not having been far enough in that direction. He ran towards me upon the path. His feet, shod in dirty white shoes, twinkled on the dark earth. He pulled himself up and began to whine and cringe under a tall stovepipe hat. His dried-up little carcass was swallowed up, totally lost in a suit of black broadcloth. That was his costume for holidays and ceremonies, and it reminded me that this was the fourth Sunday I had spent in Patizan. All the time of my stay I had been vaguely aware of his desire to confide in me, if he only could get me all to himself. He hung about with an eager, craving look on his sour, yellow little face, but his timidity had kept him back as much as my natural reluctance to have anything to do with such an unsavory creature. He would have succeeded, nevertheless, had he not been so ready to slink off as soon as you looked at him. He would slink off before Jim's severe gaze, before my own, which I tried to make indifferent, even before Tommy Tom's surly superior glance. He was perpetually slinking away, Whenever seen, he was seen moving off deviously, his face over his shoulder, with either a mistrustful snarl or a woe-begone, piteous, mute aspect, but no assumed expression could conceal this innate, irremediable abjectness of his nature, any more than an arrangement of clothing can conceal some monstrous deformity of the body." I don't know whether it was the demoralization of my utter defeat in my encounter with the spectre of fear less than an hour ago, but I let him capture me without even a show of resistance. I was doomed to be the recipient of confidences, and to be confronted with unanswerable questions. It was trying, but the contempt, the unreasoned contempt the man's appearance provoked, made it easier to bear. He couldn't possibly matter. Nothing matters, since I had made up my mind that Jim, for whom alone I cared, had at last mastered his fate. He told me he was satisfied. Nearly. This is going further than most of us dare. I, who have the right to think myself good enough, dare not. Neither does any of you here, I suppose. Marlowe paused, as if expecting an answer. Nobody spoke. "'Quite right,' he began again. "'Let no soul know, since the truth can be wrung out of us only by some cruel little awful catastrophe. But he is one of us, and he could say he was satisfied. Nearly. Just fancy this. Nearly satisfied. One could almost envy him his catastrophe. Nearly satisfied. After this nothing could matter.' It did not matter who suspected him, who trusted him, who loved him, who hated him, especially as it was Cornelius who hated him. Yet after all this was a kind of recognition. You shall judge of a man by his foes as well as by his friends. 
and this enemy of Jim was such as no decent man would be ashamed to own, without, however, making too much of him. Uh, this was the view Jim took, and in which I shared, but Jim disregarded him on general grounds. "'My dear Marlowe,' he said, "'I feel that if I go straight nothing can touch me. Indeed I do. Now you have been long enough here to have a good look round, and frankly, don't you think I am pretty safe?' It all depends upon me, and, by Jove, I have lots of confidence in myself. The worst thing he could do would be to kill me, I suppose. I don't think for a moment he would. He couldn't, you know. Not if I were myself to hand him a loaded rifle for the purpose, and then turn my back on him. That's the sort of thing he is. And suppose he would. Suppose he could. Well, what of that? I didn't come here flying for my life, did I? I came here to set my back against the wall, and I'm going to stay here. Till you are quite satisfied, I struck in. We were sitting at the time under the roof of the stern of his boat. Twenty paddles flashed like one, ten on a side, striking the water with a single splash, while behind our backs Tom e Tom dipped silently right and left, and stared right down the river attentive to keep the long canoe in the greatest strength of the current. Jim bowed his head, and our last talk seemed to flicker out for good. He was seeing me off as far as the mouth of the river. The schooner had left the day before, working down and drifting on the ebb, while I had prolonged my stay overnight. And now he was seeing me off. Jim had been a little angry with me for mentioning Cornelius at all, I had not, in truth, said much. The man was too insignificant to be dangerous, though he was as full of hate as he could hold. He had called me, Honourable Sir, at every second sentence, and had whined at my elbow as he followed me from the grave of his late wife to the gate of Jim's compound. He declared himself the most unhappy of men, a victim crushed like a worm. He entreated me to look at him, I wouldn't turn my head to do so, but I could see out of the corner of my eye his obsequious shadow gliding after mine, while the moon, suspended on our right hand, seemed to gloat serenely upon the spectacle. He tried to explain, as I have told you, his share in the events of the memorable night. It was a matter of expediency. How could he know who was going to get the upper hand? I would have saved him. "'Honourable sir, I would have saved him for eighty dollars,' he protested in dulcet tones, keeping a pace behind me. "'He has saved himself,' I said, "'and he has forgiven you.' I heard a sort of tittering, and turned upon him. At once he appeared ready to take to his heels. "'What are you laughing at?' I asked, standing still. "'Don't be deceived, honourable sir,' he shrieked, seemingly losing all control over his feelings. He save himself. He knows nothing, honourable sir. Nothing whatever. Who is he? What does he want here, the big thief? What does he want here? He throws dust into everybody's eyes. He throws dust into your eyes, honourable sir. But he cannot throw dust into my eyes. He is a big fool, honourable sir. I laughed contemptuously, and turning on my heel began to walk on again. He ran up to my elbow and whispered forcibly, "'He's no more than a little child here, like a little child, a little child.' 
Of course, I didn't take the slightest notice, and seeing the time pressed because we were approaching the bamboo fence that glittered over the blackened ground of the clearing, he came to the point. He commenced by being abjectly lachrymose. His great misfortunes had affected his head. He hoped I would kindly forget what nothing but his troubles made him say. He didn't mean anything by it, only the Honourable Sir did not know what it was to be ruined, broken down, trampled upon. After this introduction he approached the matter near his heart, but in such a rambling, ejaculatory, craven fashion that for a long time I couldn't make out what he was driving at. He wanted me to intercede with Jim in his favour. It seemed, too, to be some sort of money affair. I heard time and time again the words, Moderate provision, suitable present. He seemed to be claiming value for something, and he even went the length of saying with some warmth that life was not worth having if a man were to be robbed of everything. I did not breathe a word, of course, but neither did I stop my ears. The gist of the affair, which became clear to me gradually, was in this— that he regarded himself as entitled to some money in exchange for the girl. He had brought her up, somebody else's child, great trouble and pains, old man now, suitable, present. If the Honourable Sir would say a word. I stood still to look at him with curiosity, and fearful lest I should think him extortionate, I suppose, he hastily brought himself to make a concession— in consideration of a suitable present given at once, he would, he declared, be willing to undertake the charge of the girl, without any other provision, when the time came for the gentleman to go home. His little yellow face, all crumpled as though it had been squeezed together, expressed the most anxious, eager advance. His voice whined coaxingly. "'No more trouble. Natural guardian. A sum of money.' I stood there and marvelled. That kind of thing with him was evidently a vocation. I discovered suddenly in his cringing attitude a sort of assurance, as though he had been all his life dealing in certitudes. He must have thought I was dispassionately considering his proposal, because he became as sweet as honey. "'Every gentleman made a provision when the time came to go home,' he began insinuatingly. I slammed the little gate. "'In this case, Mr. Cornelius,' I said, "'the time will never come.' He took a few seconds to gather this in. "'What?' he fairly squealed. "'Why,' I continued from my side of the gate, "'haven't you heard him say so himself? "'He will never go home.' "'Oh, this is too much!' he shouted. He would not address me as honoured sir any more. He was very still for a time, and then without a trace of humility began very low. Never go. Ah, uh, he, he, he comes here, the devil knows from where. Comes here, devil knows why, to trample on me, till I die. Ah, trample! He stamped softly with both feet. Trample like this, nobody knows why, till I die. His voice became quite extinct. He was bothered by a little cough. He came up close to the fence and told me, dropping into a confidential and piteous tone, that he would not be trampled upon. Patience! Patience! 
he muttered, striking his breast. I had done laughing at him, but unexpectedly he treated me to a wild, cracked burst of it. Ha! 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 We shall see. We shall see. What? Steal from me? Steal from me everything? 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 His head dropped on one shoulder. His hands were hanging before him, lightly clasped. One would have thought he had cherished the girl with surpassing love, that his spirit had been crushed and his heart broken by the most cruel of spoliations. Suddenly he lifted his head and shot out an infamous word. Like her mother. She is like her deceitful mother. Exactly. In her face, too. In her face. The devil. He leaned his forehead against the fence, and in that position uttered threats and horrible blasphemies and Portuguese in very weak ejaculations, mingled with miserable plaints and groans, coming out with a heave of the shoulders as though he had been overtaken by a deadly fit of sickness. It was an inexpressibly grotesque and vile performance, and I hastened away. He tried to shout something after me, some disparagement of Jim, I believe. Not too loud, though. We were too near the house. All I heard distinctly was, No more than a little child. A little child. End of chapters 33 and 34